September, but the airport said staff shortages meant the restriction would stay in place. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 16th of August. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the morning's business headlines. China has unexpectedly cut key interest rates as the latest economic data showed an alarming slowdown in the economy. The People's Bank of China cuts both the one-year medium-term lending facility and seven-day reverse repo rates. One-year MLF loan rates were reduced by 10 basis points three-quarter percent from 2.85 percent. The seven-day reverse repo rate was cut by 10 basis points also to 2 percent. Data released by the National Bureau of Statistics yesterday showed retail sales, factory output and fixed asset investment all slowed from June to July by much faster than expected as companies face flat demand at best for their exports and consumers tighten their belts in the face of disruption from China's zero-COVID lockdowns. In data from the MBS on the state of the distressed housing market on the mainland, residential housing sales areas dropped by 23.1% year-on-year. China's new home prices fell for an 11th straight month in July, declining 0.11%, and 40 out of 70 major cities recorded new home price drops month-on-month in July versus 38 in June. Japan's economic output in the April to June period expanded for the third consecutive quarter, but missed expectations in part because of high prices. Preliminary estimates show Japan's annualized GDP grew 2.2% in the second quarter of 2022, compared with the previous quarter, accelerating from an upwardly revised 0.1% increase in January to March. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Martin Henniker at St. James's Place Wealth Management and Iris Pang of ING Wholesale Banking. With a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith from CLSA. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks shook off disappointing economic data from the US and China and built on their four-week winning streak. The S&P 500 closed near the highs of the day, reversing losses of half a percent to end the session 0.4% higher at 4,297. The Dow added 151 points, closing at 33,912 and ending above its 200-day moving average for the first time since April the 20th, seen as a bullish sign by technical analysts, and the Nasdaq Composite Index outperformed, climbing 0.6% to close at 13,128. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose a third of a percent. London's FTSE 100 edged 0.1% higher. Chinese stocks reversed early gains to close lower yesterday following the worse-than-expected economic data from the mainland and on heightened US-China tensions over Taiwan and the move by five large state-owned companies to start the process of delisting from the New York Stock Exchange by the end of the month. The Hang Seng Index slipped 135 points or 0.7% to 20,041. Hong Kong's benchmark index is down more than 10% since the end of June, putting it in a technical correction. The Tech Index, which was up 1%, gave up its gains to close 1% lower. 
and the five companies that announced Friday they would delist from the NYSE, PetroChina, Sinopec, China Life Assurance, Aluminium Corporation of China and Shanghai Petrochemical were among the worst performers in Hong Kong. On the mainland, the CSI 300 index fell 0.1% and it's lost 7% now since the beginning of July and wiped out almost half of the rebound since the year low hit at the end of April. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil dropped as much as 5.5% at one stage as gloomy economic reports from the US and China added to worries of a global growth slowdown. It recovered later in the day to settle 3% lower at $95.10 a barrel. Copper prices fell as much as 2.5% to about $7,900 a metric tonne. And gold reacted to the China slowdown by dropping 1.2% after four straight weeks of gains to $1,779 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell five basis points to 2.79%. And Chinese, uh, China's 10-year government bond yield also slid five basis points to 2.675%. And global growth woes led to a bid for the dollar. The euro is almost 1% weaker at $1.01.5. The Japanese yen is at 133.18 against the greenback. Sterling fell 0.6% to $1.20.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 45 cents. The offshore yuan tumbled 1.2% to 6.815 per dollar. And the cryptocurrency rally saw Bitcoin top $25,000 for the first time since June before slipping back to $24,100. In Asia Pacific stock markets this morning, the ASX 200 is up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan uh, is down about 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea is up a third of a percent. And futures markets point it to a 40-point gain or so for the Hang Seng at the Open later on this morning. Times 8.09 and a half. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Morning to you, Martin. Good morning. Always uh, a pleasure. Thank you. And, all, and also with us, Iris Peng, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Morning to you, Iris. Morning, Peter. So let's start with that economic data from, um, uh, from China. Retail sales, factory outputs and fixed asset investment all slowed from June to July by much faster than expected. Let's give you the numbers. Industrial production rose by 3.8% in July year-on-year. That's below estimates for a rise of 4.6%, down slightly from the 3.9% growth in June. Retail sales on the mainland rose 2.7% year-on-year. That slowed from 3.1% in June and missed economist forecasts of 5% growth and fixed asset investment, uh, which is expenditure on infrastructure, property, machinery and equipment. That rose by 5.7% in the January to July period, but down from a rise of 6.1% in the first six months of the year. Um, Iris, the data's missed across the board, isn't it? How, how bad is it in your assessment? If we look at retail sales, which is particularly bad, and a lot worse than expectation, we see that there are a few items that are in contraction, for example, furniture and decoration. That is related to the um, uh, 
completion of homes. Um, that is the, the, the recent event. But if we look at other categories as well, for example, clothing, which is my favorite gauge for an average consumer, that grew only 0.8% year on year, mm. which means it is it has been no no growth at all. So we we can use this to gauge the job market, the wages, and the spending power of an average consumer, which is very weak. The, 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 it's not a surprise, really, is it? Because the problem is now there's no um, effective demand. If you don't allow people to go out and consume, there, there's no demand. Um, I think that the COVID measures has been more flexible. Otherwise, we won't see COVID clusters in Tibet and also Hainan, the travel destinations within uh, China. So I think it's more than COVID. It is a bunch of factors. COVID is one factor. Another is real estate. Another is um, the combined effects on the job market and wage. Mm. Martin, what, what do you think? Has the recovery since the end of the Shanghai lockdowns in, in June now stalled and, and maybe even gone into reverse in July? Yes, those latest numbers weren't you know, particularly great. Uh, but again, you have to put it into, firstly, the wider context of what has been happening in China and the world and then what it might mean to investing as well, which is what ultimately sort of we are concerned with. So firstly, obviously, there have still been the COVID issues. If you hadn't had that, uh, you know, China would be growing very, very uh, strongly this year. Uh, there was also recently quite good numbers on the trade picture, still with another record trade surplus. Then the mere fact that actually the interest rate were cut also from a global investor's perspective can can provide a degree of diversification given that you have other economies where inflation is actually much, much higher, uh, both in terms of the consumer price inflation and the PPI they haven't got much of a choice but to increase rates. China still has the luxury to actually do something easing. They have actually been announcing massive fiscal infrastructure uh, packages, etc., and can ease. And, and coupled with the low valuations uh, and the fact that not investing generally into anything also has its, its very own risk, especially mm -hmm. that of negative real interest rates in the world where I personally don't feel inflationary risk have completely disappeared as yet. Uh, there, there's a strong case for some exposure there as part of a diversified portfolio to me. Um, and how the, the problems that uh, Iris, me Iris mentioned, um, the, the three headwinds really to the economy, the zero COVID strategy, the, the downward spiral in the property market, also slowing export growth. How, do, how does China overcome them? Well, um, personally, I think actually the one, the one thing that I'm most concerned about China right now uh, is is none of these areas. It's it's actually the re the very low birth rate. When you look at the fertility mm. rate in China, for 2021 it was just 1.15. Last year 1.3. This is actually among the lowest in the world. And uh, we are always concerned with the medium to longer term picture, really. And I think that is. Uh, actually the number one challenge of China that they should be looking at and they have mm. been trying to roll out some measures for all the other other ones it's partly a reflection of you know the global picture uh, you have seen some weakness overnight 
in, in some of the U.S. data, which is affecting export and production in China. But I think all the economic issues are easier to uh, uh, handle uh, with, these, with these cuts in interest rates, with the fiscal infrastructure stimulus measures, etc., etc. Iris, what's your 2022 growth forecast now for the Chinese economy? Are, are you lowering it at all as a result of this latest data? Yeah, actually, I have lowered the GDP forecast from 4.4% for 2022 to 4%. And um, I, my forecast, honestly, is still... Um, You're quite optimistic above, compared yeah, to a lot of other people. above the, the consensus, mm. yes. The, the, the reason behind my more optimistic, although not as optimistic as others, my, my forecast is based on the fact that COVID measures will be even more flexible um, moving forward in, in several months, in the coming months, so that um, people flows and um, inbound travels will be easier and people will be able to create jobs from these um, inbound travels and therefore better purchasing power in general for the whole um, consumption. But um, this based on the assumption that COVID measures will be more flexible. Do you, do you think they are? Because if you look at what's been going on in, in recent days, you've got tourists locked down in hotels on um, Sanya in, in, on Hainan Island. You had that, that video emerging over the weekend of people trying to flee the IKEA store in Shanghai because they were afraid of getting locked in there and, and trapped for uh, who knows how long. Um, it, it doesn't seem that uh, this is getting any easier on the mainland and, and confidence is, is being harmed quite dramatically. The existing measures compared to the one adopted in Shanghai lockdown back in March to May is a lot flexible. They, the quarantine time depends on the number of cases in the location and they actually split out the locations in, into smaller areas. So it should be um, more flexible. But that depends on whether you have more and more cases. If you have more and more cases, then the mechanism is actually uh, will end up the same. Um, luckily, China has uh, has now a drug to cure COVID, not just to prevent COVID. That will also help to stop the cluster spreading faster. Mm. Martin, tell me what do you think about the real estate sector because that took another turn for the worse as well uh, last month. Investment into real estate fell 12.1% year on year, accelerating uh, from 9.6% forward in June. Housing sales uh, worsened. They're now down 28.6% year on year. There, there doesn't seem to be a bottom, does there, to the real estate sector and its problems? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And um there's two ways to look at it. One is real estate prices directly, and the other is you know equities or fixed interest that's related, right? So, um, personally, when you look at real estate uh, prices in China and even in Hong Kong, you're looking at um, prices in relation to average um, household earnings, rental yields, etc. Uh, so that's. Uh, still among the highest in the world. So I don't personally think it's the greatest investment opportunity mm. ever. Equities, though, on the other hand, are, when you look at valuations, uh, among the lowest in the world. So we 
think generally speaking there might be uh, better opportunities there. But that's not to say that you shouldn't own property all into into equities and all into one market, etc., etc. We always, you know, advocate diversification. But from an investor, if one has got lots of properties with lots of leverage, I think it's still a good idea to diversify. Deleverage just to be in the safe side. Nobody knows exactly where interest rates might be heading as well, and where where inflation figures uh, might be uh, heading. But for the uh, wider impact on the economy, banking sector, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I'm not really concerned that we see a financial system meltdown or or anything of this nature, like some pundits have been saying. Actually, shadow banking loans have been reducing for 49 consecutive uh, months in China. And I think overall, the Chinese uh, government's fiscal position and and financial strength overall does provide the ammunition to support wherever there might be more serious contagion that they see. The problem is it's not looking good for the developers, is it? Because the the efforts to try and stabilise the housing market are really uh, focused on homeowners, not the builders. So it it could be, you know, the developers are going to report another third, uh, 30% decline or so in earnings in, in the first half of this year. That's obviously something only for investors with very good nerves to look at it. Uh, obviously, prices have considerably declined, but there's also question marks on you know, liquidity on many of them. So uh, one has to be very careful about one's risk and volatility runs. If one looks at a global portfolio, though, and uh, selectively at Chinese equities, I wouldn't necessarily rule out uh, owning companies in any one particular market or sector um, because whenever people are most pessimistic about a particular market or particular sector, there can sometimes be good opportunities. One just has got to be careful about managing the risks of it. Mm. Iris, um, tell me what you think about this interest rate cut. It, it's come as a surprise um, because up to now the, the PBOC has been quite reluctant, hasn't it, to loosen monetary policy. And in fact, in recent days, uh, it's been talking about you know not flooding uh, the economy with stimulus. And now suddenly it's cut rates. Has, has it panicked? I think... Um Actually, it is very difficult to interpret the rate cuts, especially the MLF operation this time, because it cuts rate by 10 basis points. But at the same time, it withdrew liquidity mm. in the MLF program. 200 billion yuan. Yeah. So what does that mean? Do, <laughs> does it want to cut rate or, or stabilize rate or whatever? So... Um, whenever there is some kind of this mixed message operations, I think the, the, the most important thing is look at the seven days. Because the seven days actually can direct the three month Shibor and then up to, um, other tenors. And then maybe other contracts that depends on the three month Shibors. So, um, I would say that they are, they are determined to, to cut interest rates. But this 10 basis point cuts may not have. <laughs> is, is 10 basis points enough yes. given the, the size of the problem on the mainland? Is it going to make any difference? The, the question is after this 10 basis point cuts, whether they will cut, um, for another 10 basis point, Months after months. My opinion is that they will be very difficult to continue to cut rates. The first thing is that the PBOC has um, stated a few times that they are not going into low interest rate environments. That's the US, 
Europe, Eurozone and Japan has experienced. So they are actually defying the gravity. Mm. The second thing is that this cut may be only beneficial for those existing um, customers. Mm. I don't think that uh, for banks and for other creditors are likely to to give credits uh, easier than in the past. So existing meaning also the mortgagors that will that are enjoying or will enjoy mortgage holidays, they will benefit. But isn't China in a liquidity trap? We saw from that uh, loan data on, on Friday, there's plenty of money in the system. MT grew, yeah. but people just don't want to borrow at the moment for, for understandable reasons. Yeah, So, but this is not really liquidity trap. This is more uh, a short-term cyclical issue rather than a big trend. So it is not already there yet, but it could if the PBOC cuts further. Mm. Martin, tell me quickly what you think about um, Chinese markets. We've had um, the, the, the bounce that, that we saw from sort of like the March low in the year. About half of that has now been uh, retraced since the end of June. What are your thoughts on where we go from here? Well, it's quite hard generally to to predict in the short term where markets are going to go. I think um, inflationary pressures is going to be a supporting factor actually over the medium to long term as companies generally can pass on rising costs to um, consumers and then for China specific valuations are quite attractive. I wouldn't also call it a panic cut at all from the Chinese government. Yes, some weaker page, so they cut a little bit, but they've got the room. You know, if you're looking mm. at more panicky numbers, you, you know, Eurozone has 0% interest rates and 8.9% uh, inflation. If, mm. one, if one wanted to panic there and it, it, Italian bonds rising with very high debt load, maybe that's something um, you know, more to describe uh, in this way. So, um, no, overall, I think there's, there's potential for markets actually to come back further. But uh, my first recommendation is always be cautious. Don't speculate short term on things to continue. Don't leverage when just investing just to be on the safe side and be able to set out corrections if there's further uh, macro other risks emerging, which could well be the case. Thank you very much. That's Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investments Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. Time's 8.25. On the phone from Tokyo is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning to you. So as well as China, we've also had GDP data out from uh, Japan. Uh, preliminary estimate shows Japan's GDP grew 2.2% in the second quarter. Uh, that's up from a revised 0.1% increase in the first quarter. They had initially uh, projected a contraction, but lower than the economist's forecast. What do you make of it, Nick? Well, it's good, but it's not great. Um, so... I suppose you, you first have to um, to look over at the U.S. and say, well, um, they're arguing whether the U.S. is already in recession with two quarters of back-to-back uh, uh, contraction. Japan's got its uh, third quarter of, uh, uh, of growth and not bad at 2.2%. Mm. Um, of course, it's not great either because it's only just bringing uh, GDP back to where it was just before the, uh, the pandemic. Um, what really stands out is, yes, it was uh, consumption driving the uh, the rise, but it's also consumption that's uh, surprisingly weak. So if you look at the, the real consumption activity index, it's still now um, 
5.6% below the average for her calendar 19. Mm, okay. So, uh, you know, people are coming back from um, uh, from lockdown, but uh, but it's still it's still very very depressed. Okay, um, I want to ask you about uh, Japan's energy policy. A lot of countries now are reviewing their uh, energy strategy in light of uh, the Ukraine war. We just seen the UK this week come out with its blueprint. Um, a lot of that is focused on uh, building new nuclear plants. Where does Japan stand on this? Japan is quite a sad story, isn't it? Obviously, you have to go back to um, 11th of March uh, 2011 when it was hit by a, um, a, a mega quake uh, that, uh, because of the, uh, the tsunami it caused, took out um, a major nuclear plant. And Japan has been dithering about whether to switch on nuclear for the, uh, uh, the whole uh, decade since then. Um, you look across at Germany and you see that they've um, shut all but three of their 17 nuclear plants and decided they don't like n- nuclear, which was strange because nuclear was at the forefront. Uh, Germany was the forefront of, uh, uh, of the start of nuclear um, uh, three quarters of a century ago. Um, but uh, nuclear, obviously, Germany is looking at that and saying, we're going to need those back on again because we've got serious um, over-dependency mm. on Russia for, her, for hydrocarbons. Japan's looking at it and saying, well, we've got, um, as a result of shutting down um, our 54 nuclear power plants, we've got a lack of energy um, supply. We've got uh, large volatility. We've got... Um, a, uh, a trade uh, deficit as a result of all of this. We can't honour our promises for COP26 without restarting it, uh, and prices are, are through the roof. So um, I think public opinions turn very uh, firmly towards uh, restarting nuclear. I mean, some environmentalists are, are worried that it's too expensive and also it's too um, dangerous. Is, is public opinion on their side? Well, I mean, obviously, um, back when we started using gasoline for cars, there were a lot of uh, injuries there, and, and no one said, it's too dangerous, we'll never be able to get the, uh, the science right. We, uh, we trusted that we would, and we, we're just going to have to get the, uh, the science right for this. But it, because of the uh, link in some people's minds between nuclear explosions and nuclear power plants that they don't have between, say, gasoline and, uh, and, and napalm, um, that it's it's difficult to get people around, but the um, the polls being done from a number of sources are suggesting that uh, whilst Japanese people have been against nuclear, they've uh, turned uh, uh, towards it recently. I mean, it's it, it certainly changes things when you're asking that question in in the middle of the uh, uh, the, the muggy summer heat in Japan and uh, the government saying don't switch your air conditioners on. Mm. I mean, this is a focus on energy supply, but what about a focus on energy? saving measures things like uh insulating buildings for example is, is there any focus on that in japan well there's been a focus on that for a long time and japan um as one of the countries uh, particularly exposed to imported hydrocarbons uh ha- has been a leader in this for a long time although i, I think it's um it, it's given back some of that lead but yes i think uh, japan's been uh, been good at cutting its um its energy usage uh, so you know primary um, energy per capita is is uh, very low especially bearing in mind the um uh, the gdp levels so is this nuclear theme is it a good investment theme 
I think, well, obviously, it's had a, a good run all, all the way through the year. Um, so I'd been talking about Tokyo Electric Power from the start of the year or some, from the end of last year. That's had a heck of a run. Um, I've run in, uh, switched into uh, Kansai Electric Power, and uh, um, uh, that's, uh, that's harder going. But um, nuclear restarts, I think, are... Um, inevitable and they will benefit uh, nuclear um, nuclear power companies there's also the question about the uh, the builders which is more complicated because um, uh, globally no one's been building or, or, or there's been very little nuclear building for uh, a very long time and uh, when they start building them now they're um, uh, they tend to have problems on cost overruns but um, you, you could uh, certainly look at the uh, the heavy um, uh, the heavers in Japan, Mitsubishi heavy industry, for example, as uh, as plays on uh, on the the need for nuclear rebuilding. Thanks very much, Nick. Good to talk to you. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. And in Tokyo, the Nikkei two two five down a quarter of a percent. Uh, here in Hong Kong, looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, few showers and thunderstorms. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 31 degrees. Occasional showers and thunderstorms on Wednesday and Thursday. Temperature right now is 26 degrees, 93% relative humidity. Times 8.32, here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. A man who died in an apparent suicide outside the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., has been named by police. Richard A. York III from Delaware drove his car into a barricade and fired shots in the air before turning his gun on himself. Police say they still haven't discovered any motive for the incident. Health officials here have again called on parents to inoculate their children against COVID-19 after yet another infected toddler ended up in intensive care. The 27-month-old boy developed croup, which narrows their airways, and was critically ill by yesterday afternoon. He hadn't been vaccinated, although jabs for under threes only became available just under a fortnight ago. A chief manager at the hospital authority, Lao Ka Hin, spoke through an interpreter. His difficulty in breathing continued to worsen, and then he um, presented with croup, and intubation was required to assess his breathing. He is now in the pediatric ICU of Princess Margaret Hospital in critical condition. We appeal to parents once again to not hesitate. Take your children to get vaccinated to enhance protection as soon as possible. Vaccination against COVID-19 is the most effective way to prevent serious conditions and fatalities. Hong Kong reported just under 4,900 new COVID cases and four more deaths. A former president of the Hong Kong Automobile Association, Wesley Wan, says fines for dumping unwanted cars or motorcycles should be increased to $10,000. He said the problem of abandoned vehicles has become pretty bad, with motorbikes dumped in alleyways and unwanted cars left in the new territories. He told RTHK that the current littering fine was $1,500, while it could cost around a few thousand to arrange for proper disposal. Mr. Wan was commenting on the government's new cleanup drive that was launched on Sunday. The new law was presented to the Legislative Council in May. And if it gets passed later this year, it will be introduced in 2024. And the new law is about if a vehicle has not been registered for two years, then it will be deregistered by the transport department. So the owner will be warned they will get
some time to pick up your own trash, and then you'll get a fine. The fine now is $1,500, but they are going to increase it, of course. The police say they have introduced a new mechanism that monitors public opinion online using big data data to fight against disinformation. Chief Superintendent Karen Chung from the force's newly upgraded public relations wing says what happened during the 2019 social unrest 